Welcome to IVP's Hypergrowth Podcast. In this series, we talk with CEOs of the fastest growing companies and discuss the ins and outs of company building in the hypergrowth environment. If you like what you hear, consider following us on SoundCloud or subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. Thanks and enjoy the show. Hi, I'm Roseanne Winsack, an investor at IVP. IVP is a 39-year-old venture firm solely focused on high-growth, later-stage tech companies. I like to think that we specialize in hypergrowth, that unique phase in some of the very best companies' lives. IVP has had the privilege of investing in and working with many hypergrowth companies, including Dropbox, Twitter, Snap, Coinbase, Compass, Discord, AppDynamics, CrowdStrike, Glossier, and of course, Masterclass. And we get to see this phase firsthand. Today, I have David Rogier, CEO of Masterclass, joining me. David founded Masterclass in 2013 with the vision of giving everyone access to genius. We led Masterclass's $35 million Series C in March of 2017 and their $85 million Series D in September of 2018. Masterclass is a prime example of hypergrowth. When we first invested less than two years ago, the company was only about 40 people, and they had just launched their 13th class. Today, the team is nearly three times the size, is on its 50th class, and has launched a subscription streaming service. Today, we're going to learn a little bit about how David's gotten to this point, what he wished he had known, and how he deals with hypergrowth. I'd love to start by hearing you describe Masterclass in your own words and a little bit about what inspired you to start the company. So the company started probably a year and a half before launch. I was working in venture at the time, and I was investing in startups, and I realized that I missed building stuff. So I actually went to the head of the fund um, that I was working at, and I told him that, you know, I think I want to go start something, I'm not sure what. And he invested about half a million, and he told me to basically go think of a great idea. And that seems awesome, but it's also really, really, really scary. Because I know this was the only chance in my life I was going to get to actually do that. Um, And it's a lot of pressure. And I didn't have a great idea. Um, And I tried lots. I I tried tons of ideas. And then I kept going back to a story that I heard from my grandmother. So my grandmother helped raise me. And I remember um, I was eight or nine years old in second grade, however, however old you are then. And I went to her house after school one day, and I was complaining about all the math homework I had, which obviously I did not have a lot of math homework because I was like eight or nine. And um, she told me that she had a, a story to tell me. And I was like, oh, God, it's like the last thing like I want to hear. And she tells, me this, she tells me this story. So my grandmother was 16 years old, living in Krakow, Poland. Um, her and her mom went on a family vacation. Dad stayed home to just take care of some work. He was supposed to join him in a day or two. And while they were on vacation, the Nazis invaded. Um, they took everything and they killed her father. She flees to New York City. The only job she can get is on a factory floor. She works on a factory floor. And she decides she wants to become a doctor. She finds every medical school she can find. She applies to all of them. She gets a no from every single school. She keeps working on the factory floor, applies again the next year, gets a no from every single one. And she starts calling up the deans of admissions and asking, why am I not getting in? They all hang up on her except for one who says, I'll be honest, you have three strikes against you. You are a woman, you are a foreigner, and you are Jewish, and hangs up the phone. It's crazy to think that he thought that was like okay to say at that time, right? Um, she, go, she goes back to the factory floor. She applies again the next year. Um, she, get, she then gets into one school and becomes a doctor. And I was, and I'm staring at her. I'm like age eight or nine. And she goes, David, the point I'm trying to make you 
is that education is the only thing that a person can't take away from you. But that changed how I thought about my school and my education. And I thought if this is my one chance where I can build a company, I want to build something that other people can't take away from others. Um, and for me, that meant I was going to build an online school. So how did you go from the leap of kind of like online school to masterclass? Because, I mean, just, you know, when you think about kind of the typical online education companies, they take school and just stick it on the internet. Yep. How did you... Fair. <laughs> How did you reinvent that model? So one, I posted an ad on Craigslist up and down the state in small farm towns offering to pay people, I think it was eight or 12 bucks just to talk to them about their education because I wanted to hear how they wanted to actually learn and how they actually learned. Then I thought about why don't I like to take online classes and I like love to learn. And then three, we actually built a fake website that we bought ad traffic to to just see what people would like try to do. And you clearly saw that if you make classes from the best in the world, it was going to attract more than just the average person. Because think about it, for me, I always think about this with me and a class from Aaron Sorkin, and that like, I don't want to write a screenplay. I'll never write a screenplay. If Aaron Sorkin would teach a class on screenwriting, I would take that in a second, just because I want to know. So I think if you get the best in the world, it will actually expand the size of the market. And then I don't think it really clicked with us that we should make the classes be really high quality and put as much effort and work as you make into making a film to a class until we were trying to figure out how to actually film our classes and we didn't have any filming experience. And I remember I went to, a, uh, I was asking friends and somebody suggested I talk to this guy named Bill Gutentag, who's a professor at, at Stanford who won two Oscars for docs that he made. We went out to lunch with him. We asked him a bunch of questions about how do you hire a crew? How do you find a crew? And then he's like, you're just not gonna ask me to do it? And we're like, wait, what? You would shoot it? He's like, it sounds fun. And we're like, we could get, somebody with two Oscars actually direct our classes. And that totally changed how we thought about things. We could do it at, at that tier. And so now, you know, our team is full of people that have won from Emmys to Oscars. So with the Stanford professor, did you have an instructor at that point? Or were you still kind of trying to find instructors? At that point, we had our first instructor. And so we needed to figure out how to actually film that class. What, what resonated with him? Like, why did he think this was interesting? So I actually asked him, but I waited till we finished filming. because I thought <laughs> I was gonna, You don't um, want him to like think too hard about it and maybe say no. Yeah, I think this is one of the things that surprised me about all our instructors. They all had someone in their life that helped mentor them and they really want to give back. And they've been they've, it's been hard for them to find a way to actually do it. These people are incredibly busy, and so it's really hard for them to teach at a traditional school. And when they, if they do teach at a traditional school, it's really small amount of people that they can actually impact, right? A class of 12 people or 20 people. And so I think what, what, real, what actually really appeals to them is that this is a chance to reach so many people and people who otherwise would have never had a chance to learn from them. And that was the same thing for Jim. I mean, Jim was like, look, I give tons of money to back to schools and education, but like, I actually want to help teach. It's actually like the mission and the vision that's like really resonating with people. Yeah. And today it feels like everybody wants to do a masterclass. We've been surprised that there's been this network effect on the instructor side, right? That like you get instructors and they bring in more instructors and you get instructors that walk in the front door because they want to be you know, they want to participate in this and they want to be associated with, you know, that, all the great people. I underestimated the strength of that effect. I mean, now we say no to nine out of the 10 people that come to us. And I remember talking to Steph Curry. Steph makes tons of money. Why is it that he wants to teach? And, he's, and he says, well, imagine, he's like, I picture if I could have taken a class like this 
from Michael Jordan. And like, I wish, I wish I had that. And so I wish I could give back and maybe I'll have an impact on some people. I want on others, but like, I at least want to try to help. I guess like on the upside on the instructor recruiting, there's been this flywheel and the brand and, and people really like identify with this, but like, what's been harder about actually getting instructors to either like sign up or participate or show up? As we've grown on the instructor side, it's going to have gotten easier. So they, they now know who we are. They, they also have trust and faith in our quality and our process. Um, but you lose some of the ability that to claim that you are a startup. And so like when, you know, if you want to do a small, the deal size, you want to be smaller or something, <laughs> you want to change it. Like you can't say anymore, we are a small company because they all have friends that have made money from this. And so it's harder in some ways to kind of, kind of, you know, to plead yeah. that. I'm like, oh, startup. I read that you, you raised $85 million and yeah. September. Yeah. Know. Frankly, I want to like switch gears a little bit and, and talk more about, you know, your experience as a CEO. And just last week, I, I went to this panel where there were three CEOs like actually talking about their fundraising experience. You've raised about $140 million, a lot of money. Um, so just kind of like tell me about like how you attacked the fundraising process. I didn't realize that the fundraising process is like an art. Until probably I worked in venture and I was like, whoa, there are some entrepreneurs who are so good at this. And so when we had to raise our next round, I talked to a bunch of entrepreneurs and asked them for, asked them, asked them for advice. And there was like this whole skill and craft like I didn't even know it existed. And so I think for me, what I found was really helpful is like every stage that we need to raise, I try to find some entrepreneurs that have at least done that stage, if not a stage ahead. And I ask them for what their advice is because each stage has its own nuances. Totally. Small things when you start out, I think it's like very early stage that I learned, don't ever send a pitch deck. Every investor will ask to send a pitch deck. Don't ever send it. The odds of you saying a pitch deck and... Is that like before a meeting or after the meeting? Before me, It's fine if it's after me. Before a meeting, don't ever do it. Because I've never found one that... I, I've never done that and it actually worked. Two, it's hard in a pitch deck to like... Con, uh, unless you are Uber and your stats are just like huge and up and up and up. Especially at early stage, C or A. It's so hard to like explain and, and show how much potential your company has. In a pitch deck... You're probably not going to. And what will happen is an investor will look at the pitch deck, scan through it, and be like, and now I'm not interested, um, versus in person. So, like, if an investor asked me to send the pitch deck, I would try everything I could to not, in order to not send it. In the early stage rounds, they're like investing a lot in you and the market, I found. So, you just gotta tell a great story. My grandma's story, which works great in like the first couple rounds, does not land at all in like the growth rounds. When you start talking to investors and then, you know, who are, especially ones who are just focused on growth stage, like it's much more like, I just want to see what are the numbers. And so that changes who you bring to a pitch. So, you know, in these, you know, in this last round, I, I, I would go with our head of finance, not only because like he's great and it's on top of everything, but also I need them to feel safe that we are on top of our costs and our numbers, and I want them to feel trust and faith in that person because even though they are investing in me, they're also investing in like the, the kind of strength of that finance organization. Yeah, like the infrastructure that you've built around you so that you can like be the steward of 85. Yeah, and they want to know, how, is there somebody that I picked to run that team that actually is going to be good, somebody who understands and thinks about it the exact same way as them, yeah. right? You figured out how to navigate it but I guess like what I would love to hear too is like what investors did that really impressed you that you really liked and like 
What did investors do that really turned you off? Getting a bad investor can cripple the business. If you have a bad investor on the board, and I saw this when I was in venture, if you have a bad board member, I mean, you are in a world of pain. And so a criteria for us was making sure that we choose investors that are going to be great board members. And everybody has defines what that is on their own. For me, a great board member is somebody who, you know, gives fantastic, who, who gives great advice, really actually helps on parts of the business, is there to also help coach you, um, but is not somebody who wants to run the business. Because the boards I've seen that have somebody on like that who wants to run the business without being in the business ends up being a mess. Yeah. And so one of the things I did for each of our investors is I talked to lots of founders that they are on the boards of and asked them for the best parts of them and the worst parts of them. And what shocked me was like the worst parts of them. So I remember talking to, we're thinking about taking on a new investor and she gave me a list of her founders I should talk to. And so you always want to talk to that list, but you also want to talk to ones who they don't give you. But I remember I called one of the ones on her list. I talked to the founder and she had fired that founder from their own company. And I was like, wait, what? And I was like, and how that's like you, a ballsy reference. That's a very ballsy reference. And I was like, so do do you like work? Like, are you on great terms with her? Like, nope, I hate her. I was like, that's so fascinating and interesting that a VC would give me a entrepreneur to talk to who they fired and did not get along with. After I spoke to that founder, I said, I did not want that person on our board. I mean, yeah, I think that's like probably the right outcome for you. But I actually, I have to say, like, I kind of admire that because the thing is, is like. If you fired a founder, like somebody doing background research on you is going to figure that out in like two calls. And so you might as well just like be upfront about it. I've had a case where that was the case, where it was also somebody who they fired. They ended up being on fantastic terms and that investor decided to invest into their next company. So that to me was was really great reference mm-hmm. because look, here's a founder that was not right for it. But look, us two still work well together. This person still respects me. This person is choosing to work with me again. Somebody who, somebody I fired wants to work. With me again. Something else that didn't impress me, you and Eric, who led our C and D. And the C did so many, I remember the first time, did so many small things that like just showed how much you guys cared and you wanted it. We had a deadline that I had to make a call, but like it, it was on Thursday night or on a Friday, it was end of week, and mm-hmm. you and you guys drove me from the office all the way down to Menlo Park in the pouring in rain. The pour, in the pouring rain. <laughs> that guy was such a psycho, the driver. Was a psycho driver. It was really, it was real, it was so scary. And you guys like moved mountains every at the firm to like meet on a Friday afternoon um, in order that you guys could make a call to hit our timelines. Which means, and then when I got back to the office, you guys had ordered pizza for everybody on the team. So now it's on, which was such a smart move because now everybody on the team's like, I love IVP. And I'm like, they bought you a pizza. That was like $100 bucks for everybody on the team. And everyone on the team was like, no, they, I love them. Well, no, because you had to get back in time for a happy hour because you guys were celebrating. That's it was like right. 100,000 user or something, or 100,000 like students, something like that. And so you're like, I'm sorry, I have to be back by this time. And then you order snacks for everybody, mm-hmm. which yeah. the team loves. Yeah. I remember with our big round, Rick and Amit at NEA made a whole deck of how they could help us. And it was specifically tied to us. And it was like, it also just shows like that they really wanted and care. And I think if I'm going to work with this person for a very long time, I want somebody who's like jazz. But there's a group of investors that are sketchy. And... 
I think one of the best things about having advisors who are stage ahead of you is they're able to help you on it. And there's always some new ones you don't know, but I think we've had we've met some that are just sketchy. From wanting to meet at weird places at like weird times to ones that just act like they run the fund, they can make calls on their own and put out an offer. And then you find out that they don't have the authority to make an offer and you like have to go convince actually the person in charge. And you're like, if you're gonna lie to me about this, like why do I wanna like work with something like that? Let's switch gears a little bit like and talk about your experience as an entrepreneur. You know, Mm. you've been doing this for five years. Looking back, what do you wish you knew when you were starting out? So much. I think one of the things, so I got an MBA and almost everybody I talked to at the time said MBAs can't be great entrepreneurs. And that, like, I think planted a seed of insecurity and doubt in me about Mm. it. What I came to realize and see is, like, that is, like, just a bunch of crap. Because it's so much about who that person is and how you adapt and learn. There's no way you're going to know everything that you need to to be an entrepreneur. So you're going to have to just learn. And so it's about being open to learning, your rate of learning. Second of all, every startup, if you get lucky, has the stage changes and what you need to do as a good CEO changes. So especially as we've grown, the stuff I've learned in MBA has become more valuable. Early on in the first stages, MBA wasn't that helpful, but now it's incredibly helpful. Um, So I think it's also about what stage you're in. So I wish I had that so I had less kind of less doubt early on. Number two, I had this belief that being an entrepreneur was you spend most of your time on strategy. That is not true. (laughs) You spend a very small amount of time on strategy. You spend most of your time on what's not working. Because if it is working, which is the goal, then you should not be spending time on it. Because you, really, sh- you could yeah. move on to what's next. You move on to what's next because <laughs> you have a great exec there who's much better than you in that area and is going to do it. And so you have to spend time on things that are actually not working. And so you have to be okay with that. I like that because that means I get a, like my chance to like, fix and change and create. Um, but you have to be okay with that. Being an entrepreneur is really, really hard. There are... I mean, there's def- there's days I've cried. There's uh, I it hasn't been good to my health. I've definitely put I've increased how much I weigh. Um, I've definitely been more stressed. And those are real. There's some really hard and dark days. There's also days where the high is like something you haven't ever felt before, and your kind of own potential to have impact. And that's like I get chills about just saying it now. That that is so worth all of those other days. But I didn't realize what the low and high were going to feel like. And so other than the highs, or like other than the highs being so good, how do you deal with all the lows, right? Like how do you actually navigate that and like also like take care of yourself in, in those situations? I think the most underrated thing, I don't know why every entrepreneur does not do, is have a great therapist. I found one that is amazing because what you also see and realize, I also have an exec coach, which is great, but what I realized with a therapist is lots of the issues you're going to deal with at work are about people. And the same people that cause you issues at work are the ones that usually you talk about with a therapist. And so the therapist actually, even though they don't, they do not understand CACs and LTVs and things like this, they actually can usually understand what's going on at work. And the most valuable thing to me is they can usually, if you get somebody who's great, be able to, if you explain to them what's going on, help you predict what that person's going to do. And I found that to be amazing because now I know how the person is going to respond so I can kind of plan for it. Mm -hmm. Um, So that I found is one fantastic thing. Two is having friends and advisors that are stage ahead of you. I think is is really, really great. 
Other small things I found that really help. Every night before bed, now I write down three things I am grateful for. And that really helps. And then I also write down in Evernote a list of like really nice or great things. So these are nice things that people said to me or really great things happen in the company. So whenever like you're in a dark day or a down day, I just look at that and I'm like, all right, like it's actually going to be okay. And I think one of the things with founders is, especially as the company grows, you, in the beginning, you, you are doing a lot of the hardest stuff. And as you grow, your team should be doing a lot yeah. of it. But your instinct, every instinct is still to like work in the business instead of working on the business. And so when you work on the business, you it's less about me owning CAC and more about our head of marketing or growth. How do I help them really own CAC and do as best of a job as possible? Because mm-hmm. I'm not as deep in the weeds as you know that whole team is. You get to a point where your company gets big enough, you can bring in these experts that are understand CAC so much better than frankly you ever will and yep. like and that's a huge boon to the company yep i can focus on stuff that they that that team can't focus on or that exec can't yeah and so i guess like i'd love to talk a little bit about executive hiring and team building when you're in this hyper growth phase yeah. and like the market's like pulling your business forward so fast how do you hire fast enough to keep up and how do you actually scale culture and like how do you actually like keep like what makes it special and and great and that like magic so hard because your every instinct is to hire fast. But if you hire way too fast, your bar will drop. There's a risk your bar drops or you don't hire great people or people that fit into your culture that you want to create. I don't think we are the masters of this at all. Um, I think we've done some things right and we've made some big mistakes too. Some of the things that we've done right is we actually adapt our process all the time. Because I think because like one process that might work early on for the next phase does not work at all. Um, so we like are, we are like aren't ever stuck on that. We hired a head of people. We hired somebody to act as that head because we were because we were unsure if we needed a head of people. Um, that was one of the best moves we did, and we should probably hire that person way earlier. So I wish we hired that person way earlier. But we've done things like there aren't any assholes that work here, and so. I've learned that as we grow in the company, which is just so interesting, is in the beginning when I would interview the person, the person would act just like they do in front of everybody. But as the company's grown, how somebody acts around me actually is not the same. So I realized I can't always judge if somebody's going to be an asshole or not because to me, the person's nice. So what we make sure in the hiring process is that at least one person who interviews you is somebody extremely junior because we want to see how you act with them. And that person gets a lot of weight on the hiring process. Now, all they're trying to judge is if, if, if you're an asshole or not. Two is in the performance, we actually do it twice a year, which most companies usually don't do it once a year. One is at a super high growth stage. The, the role changes every couple of months. So you actually, I think you need to constantly check if that employee's doing a great job at it. But what we do in that review process is not just from your manager, Everybody who works for you and a certain amount of people who work with you across our teams also rate you. And so we get to see, like, are you a good teammate? Which I, I think actually plays a significant role in making sure that you don't have a, these type of people. So those, are, I think, are some of the things we've done. What we've also done and you know was new for us, when you have a high-growth company, there's a lot of people who joined you extremely early on and who are amazing and so smart and some of them can't scale. So you often see at high growth companies is they like basically like kind of purge out that group of people. I kind of hated that idea because these are people that bled and sweat for us and I want to see if they can scale. And so what we did for every single person in the company gets a career coach. 
And so they have an opportunity to try to grow for that role. Now, there's some people who do not work out and that, you know, it hasn't been a great fit and they weren't able to scale, but we're trying to give them every opportunity to because I think there's something great about the people who were there in the beginning because the people there who were there at the first stage know how hard it was. Yeah. When you join now, you're like, well, we, we, or, our sales are already good. We already have a bunch of instructors, but I want people in the organization who are like, no, it was really hard to get instructors or the first customers were so hard. And so I want to do everything I can to, you know, to give those people a chance to grow. Yeah, especially and like those people become culture carriers. Exactly. Because they like they know what it was like when it was hard, not when you're going through this fun part where the market's pulling you forward. Exactly. Right. Like I'd love to hear a little bit about hiring mistakes that you've made. Where'd you get it wrong? I definitely got this wrong in the beginning. I had to learn this and I still don't always do a great job of it, but definitely I can improve that. And so I've tried to get be extremely fast about to move that person out of the organization, but I think I should have been even faster at times. And I think if anything I've learned is to just go like I've never once found somebody who's underperforming and then I then push out of the business and then wish like kept the person that has never ever happened. So I, I think to be even faster there, mm-hmm. I had to learn the hard way that just cause somebody's nice to me does not mean the person's a nice person. I also think there's some roles where you're okay to hire somebody that has potential and maybe doesn't have quite enough experience, but they're so smart and so driven that you think they can get there. There are some roles where that risk is okay. I have, I had to learn, I don't know, I didn't think I've always made a great choice on those. Things we've done that I think have been really great. We have almost every employee before they start here has to do a project. That is huge. Because what you, you realize there's some people that do interview well, but like you aren't hiring somebody based on, you shouldn't hire somebody based on interview skills. Show them based on their work. Yeah. So having everybody do a piece of work, like then you can see like, is the work good or not? And so that's like a rule for almost every single role of the company. How do you build a company that the best employees are going to love it? And so, cause if you build a company that's for like the B players, you're going to get all B players. So I'll give you an example. I won't set what are the office hours or, or kind of work hours of the company? Like I don't say I need you in at 10 o'clock and you're out by seven or whatever it is. Because if I'm an A player, I would hate that. I decided to work at six in the morning when before my kids are up, I want to go home early because do some of my kids and I'll work at night. And so you have to make it for the A players. You do it for them because that you actually want them to stay and then you want to get the B players out. This has been awesome. Thank you so much for the time and for being so candid. Thank you for listening to IVP's Hypergrowth Podcast. You can learn more about us on IVP.com or join the conversation on Twitter by tweeting at IVP.